Chapter Four, Part One of the Night Operator. This is a LibriVox recording. It is in the public domain. The Night Operator by Frank L. Packard. Chapter Four: The Wrecking Boss, Part One. Opinions, right or wrong, on any subject are a matter of individuality. There have been different opinions about Flanagan on the Hill Division, but the story is straight enough. From car tink to superintendent, there had never been any difference of opinion about that. Flanagan was the wrecking boss. Tommy Regan said the job fitted Flanagan, for it took a hard man for the job, and Flanagan, bar none, was the hardest man on the payroll. Hardest at crooking elbows in McGuire's Blazing Star Saloon, hardest with his fists, and hardest of all when it came to getting at the heart of some scalding, mangled horror of death and ruin that a man wouldn't be called a coward to turn from. Sick. Flanagan looked it. He stood six feet one in his stockings, and his chest and shoulders were like the front-end view you'd get looking at a sturdy, well-grown ox. He wasn't pretty. His face was scarred with cuts and burns enough to stall any German dueling student on a siding till the rails rusted, and the beard he grew to hide these multitudinous disfigurements just naturally came out in tussocks. He had black eyes that could go coal-black and lose their pupils, and a shock of black hair that fell into them half the time. Also, he had a tongue that wasn't elegant. That was Flanagan. Flanagan the Wrecking Boss. There's no accounting for the way some things come about, and it's pretty hard to call the turn of the card when Dame Fortune deals the bank. It's a trite enough saying that it is the unexpected that happens in life, but the reason it's trite is because it's immeasurably true. Flanagan growled and swore and cursed one night, coming back from a bit of a spill up the line, because they stalled him and his wrecking outfit for an hour about half a mile west of Big Cloud, the reason being that, like the straw that broke the camel's back, a circus train in from the east, billed for a three days layoff at Big Cloud, had, seeking siding, temporarily choked the yards, already glutted with traffic, until the mix-up Gleason the yardmaster had to wrestle with would have put a problem in differential calculus into the kindergarten class. Flanagan was very dirty and withal very tired, and when finally they gave him the clear and his flat and caboose and his staggering derrick rumbled sullenly down toward the roundhouse and shops, the sight of gilded cages, gaudily decorated cars, and converted pullmans that were second-class tourist equipment painted white, did not assuage his feelings. Neither was there enchantment for him in the roars of multifarious beasts, nor in the hybrid smells that assailed his nostrils from the general direction of the menagerie. Flanagan, for an hour's loss of sleep, with heartiness and abandon, consigned that particular circus, also all others, and everything thereunto pertaining, from fangless serpents to steam calliopes, to regions that are popularly credited with being somewhat warmer than the torrid zone on the hottest day in midsummer. But then uh, Flanagan did not know. Opinions differ. Flanagan was about the last man on earth that anyone on the Hill Division would have picked out for a marrying man. And equally true the other way around, 
about the last man they would have picked out as one a pretty girl would want to marry. With her, maybe, it was the strength of the man, since they say that comes first with women. With him, maybe, it was just a trim, little, brown-eyed, brown-haired figure that could ride with the grace of a fairy. Anyway, the only thing about it that didn't surprise anyone was the fact that when it came, it came as sudden and quick as a head-on smash around a ninety-degree curve. That was Flanagan's way, for Flanagan, if he was nothing else, was impulsive. That night, Flanagan cursed the circus. The next day, he saw Daisy McQueen riding in the street parade. But this isn't the story of Flanagan's courtship. Not but that the courtship of any man like Flanagan would be worth the telling. Only there are other things. At first, Big Cloud winked and chuckled slyly to itself, and then when the circus left and Flanagan got a week off and left with it, it guffawed outright. But when, at the end of that week, Flanagan brought back Mrs. Flanagan, nay, Daisy McQueen, Big Cloud stuck its tongue in its cheek, wagged its head, and waited developments. This is the story of the developments. Maybe that same impulsiveness of Flanagan's, that could be blind and bull-headed, coupled with a passion that was like a devil's when aroused, was to blame. Maybe the women of Big Cloud, following the lead of Mrs. McAloon, the engineer's wife, and the leader of society circles, who shook her fiery red head and turned up her Celtic nose disdainfully at Daisy McQueen, had something to do with it. Maybe Daisy herself had a little pride, but what's the use of speculating? It all goes back to the same beginning. Opinions differ. Tongues wagged. Flanagan listened. That's the gist of it. But once for all, let it be said and understood that Daisy McQueen was as straight as they make them. She hadn't been brought up the way Mrs. McAloon and her coterie had, and she liked to laugh like to play, like to live, and not exist in a humdrum way, ever over wash-tubs and a cook-stove, though, all credit to her who hadn't been used to them, she never shirked one nor the other. The women's ideas about circuses and circus performers were, putting it mildly, uh, puritanical. But the men liked Daisy McQueen, and took no pains to hide it. They clustered around her, and before long she ruled them all imperially with a nod of her pretty head, and as a result the women's ideas from puritanical became more so, which is human nature, big cloud, or anywhere else. At first Flanagan was proud of the little wife he had brought to big cloud, proud of her for the very attitude adopted toward her by his mates, but as the months went by, gradually the wagging tongues got in their work, gradually Flanagan began to listen, and the jealousy that was his by nature above the jealousy of most men commenced to smolder into flame. Just a rankling jealousy directed against no one in particular, just jealousy. Things up at the little house off Main Street where the Flanagans lived weren't as harmonious as they had been. In the beginning, Daisy, not treating the matter seriously, answered Flanagan with a laugh. Finally, she answered him not at all. And that stage, 
unfortunately far from unique in other homes than Flanagan's the world over, was reached where only some one act, word, or deed was needed to bring matters to a head. Perhaps, after all, there was poetic justice in Flanagan's cursing of the circus, for it was the circus that supplied that one thing needed. Not that the circus came back to town, it didn't, but a certain round, little, ferret-eyed, short, pompadour-haired, waxed-mustached, perfumed, Signor Ferraringi, the ringmaster, did. Ferraringi was a scoundrel. What he got he deserved. There was never any doubt about that. But that night Flanagan, when he walked into the house, saw only Ferraringi on his knees before Daisy, heard only impassioned flowery words, and in the blind fury that transformed him from man to beast, the scorn, contempt, and horror in Daisy's eyes, the significance of the rigid little figure with tight-clenched hands was lost. Ferranringi had been in love with Daisy. Flanagan knew that, and his seething brain remembered that. The circus people had told him so. Daisy had told him so. Ferranringi had told him so with a snarl and a threat, and he had laughed. Then, one instant, Flanagan hung upon the threshold. He was not a pretty sight. Back from a wreck he was still in his overalls, and these were smeared with blood. Four carloads of steers had gone into premature shambles in the ditch. One instant Flanagan hung there, his face working convulsively, and then he jumped, his left hand locked into the collar of the ringmaster's coat, his arms straightened like the tautening chains of his own derrick crane, and as the other came off his knees and upright from the yank, Flanagan's right swung a terrific full-arm smash, that landing a little above the jaw, plastered one side of that tonsorial work of art, the waxed and curled mustache, flat into Ferranringi's cheek. Ferranringi's answer, as he wriggled free, was a torrent of malediction and a blinding flash. Daisy screamed. The shot missed, but the powder singed Flanagan's face. It was the only shot that Ferranringi fired. With a roar, high-pitched like the maddening trumpet of an elephant amuck, Flanagan, with a single blow, sent the revolver sailing, ceiling high. Then his arms, like steel piston-rods, worked in and out, and his fists drummed an awful, merciless tattoo upon the ringmaster. The smoke from the shot filled the room with pungent odor. Chairs and furniture, overturned, broken, crashed to the floor. Daisy, wild-eyed with parted lips, dumb with terror, crouched against the wall, her hands clasped to her breast. But before Flanagan's eyes all was red, red. A battered, bruising, reeling, staggering form before him curled up suddenly and slid in a heap at his feet. Flanagan, with groping hands and twitching fingers, reached for it, and then with a rush other forms, many of them, came between him and what was on the floor. It was very good for Ferranringi, very good, for that was all that saved him. Flanagan was seeing only red. The neighbors lifted the stunned ringmaster limp as rags to his feet. Flanagan brushed his great fist once across his eyes in a half-dazed way and glared at the room full of people. Suddenly he heaved forward, pushing those nearest him violently toward the door. "'Get out of here!' he bellowed hoarsely. "'Get out of here! Curse you to your hair! Get out!' There were men in that little crowd, men besides the three or four women, Mrs. McAloon amongst them, men not reckoned over-faint in spirit of Big Cloud by those who knew, 
but they knew Flanagan, and they went. Went, half carrying, half dragging the ringmaster, oiled and perfumed now in a fashion grimly different than before. Get out! roared Flanagan again to hurry them, and as the last one disappeared, he whirled on Daisy. And you too! he snarled. Get out! Terrified, shaken by the scene as she was, his words, their implication, their injustice, whipped her into scorn and anger. White-lipped, she stared at him for an instant. You dare! She burst out. You dare to! Get out! Flanagan's voice in his passion was a thick, stumbling, guttural whisper. Get out! Go back to your circus! Go where you like! Get out! His hand dove into his pocket, and its contents, bills and coins, what there was of them, he flung upon the table. Get out! As far as all I've got will take you! Daisy McQueen was proud. Perhaps, though not above the pride of other women, the blood was hot in her cheeks. Her big brown eyes had a light in them near to that light with which she had faced Ferran Ringi but a short time before. Her breath came in short, hard little gasps. For a full minute she did not speak, and then the words came cold as death. Some day, some day, Michael Flanagan, you'll get what you deserve. That's what I'm getting now. What I deserve, he flung back. Then, halting in the doorway, you understand, huh? Get out. I'm letting you down easy. Get out of Big Cloud. Get out before I'm back. Number 15 will be in an hour. You better take her. Flanagan stepped out on the street. A curious little group had collected two houses down in front of Mrs. McAloon's. Flanagan glanced at them, muttered a curse, and then head down between his shoulders, clenched fists rammed in his pockets, he headed in the other direction toward Main Street. Five minutes later he pushed the swinging doors of the Blazing Star open and walked down the length of the room to where Pete McGuire, the proprietor, lounged across the bar. Pete, he jerked out his words hoarsely, next Tuesday's payday. Is my face good enough until then? McGuire looked at him curiously. The news of the fracas had not yet reached the Blazing Star. Why, sure, said he. Sure it is, Flanagan, if you want. What's... Then let him come my way, Flanagan rapped out with a savage laugh, and let him come fast. Flanagan was the wrecking boss. A hard man, Regan had called him, and he was. A product of the wild, rough, pioneering life. One of those men who followed the grim-faced, bearded corps of engineers as they pitted their strength against the sullen gray of the mighty Rockies, from the eastern foothills to the plains of the Sierras, fighting every inch of their way with indomitable perseverance, and daring over chasms and gorges, through tunnels and cuts, in curves and levels and grades, against obstacles that tried their souls, against death itself, taping the thin steel lines they left behind them with their own blood. Hard? Yes, Flanagan was hard. Uncultured, rough, primal, he undoubtedly was. A brute man, perhaps, full of the elemental, fiery, hot-headed. His passions alone swayed him. That side of Flanagan, the years and the very environment in which he had lived them, had developed to the full. The other side had been untouched. What Flanagan did that night, another might not have done, 
or he might. The judging of men is a grave business, best left alone. Flanagan let go his hold then, not at once, but gradually. That night spent in the blazing star was the first of others, others that followed insidiously, each closer upon the former's heels. Daisy had gone, had gone that night. Where he did not know, and told himself he did not care. He grew moody, sullen, uncompanionable. Big Cloud took sides. The women for Flanagan, the men for the wife. Flanagan hated the women, avoided the men, and went to the blazing star. There was only one result, the inevitable one. Regan, kindly for all his gruffness, understanding in a way, stood between Flanagan and the super, and warned Flanagan oftener than most men were warned on the Hill Division. Nor were his warnings altogether without effect. Flanagan would steady up, temporarily, maybe for a week, then off again. Steady up just long enough to keep putting off and postponing the final reckoning. And then one day, some six months after Daisy Flanagan had gone away, the master mechanic warned him for the last time. I'm through with you, Flanagan, he said. Understand that? I'm out from under, and next time you'll talk to Carlton. And what he'll have to say won't take long, about two seconds. You know Carlton, don't you? Well, then, what? It was just a week to a day after that that Flanagan cut loose and wild again. He made it night and a day of it, and then another. After that, though by that time Flanagan was quite unaware of the fact, some of the boys got him home, dumped him on his bed, and left him to his reflections, which were blank. Flanagan slept it off, and it took him about eighteen hours to do it. When he came to himself, he was in a humor that, far from being happy, was atrocious. Likewise, there were bodily ailments. Flanagan's head was bad, and felt as though a gang of boilermakers working against time were driving rivets in it. He procured himself a bracer and went back to bed. This resulted in a decidedly improved physical condition. But when he arose late in the afternoon, any improvement there might have been in his mental state was speedily dissipated. Flanagan found a letter shoved under his door, postmarked the day before, and with it an official manila envelope from the super's office. He opened the letter and read it, read it again while his jaws worked and the red surged in a passion into his face. Then with an oath he tore it savagely into shreds, flung the bits on the floor, and stamped upon them viciously with his heavy nail-heel boot. The official manila he did not open at all. A guess was enough for that a curt request to present himself in the super's office, probably. Flanagan glared at it, then grabbed his hat and started down for the station. There was no idea of shirking it. Flanagan wasn't that kind at any time, and just now his mood, if anything, spurred him on rather than held him back. Flanagan welcomed the prospect of a row about anything with anybody at that moment, if only a war of words. Carlton's office was upstairs over the ticket office and next to the dispatcher's room then, for the station did duty for headquarters and everything else. Not now, it's changed now, and there's a rather imposing gray stone structure where the old wooden shack used to be. 
but no matter that's the way it was then for those were the early days when the road was young and in the making flanagan reached the station climbed the stairs and pushed carleton's door open with little ceremony you want to see me he demanded gruffly as he stepped inside carleton sitting at his desk looked up and eyed the wrecking boss coolly for a minute no flanagan he said curtly i don't then what in blazes do you send for me for flanagan flung out in a growl see here flanagan snapped carleton i've no time to talk to you you can read can't you you're out flanagan blinked was that what was in the letter it was just that said carleton grimly hell flanagan's short laugh held a jeering note of contempt I didn't open it, or maybe I'd have known, huh? Carleton's eyes narrowed. Well, you know now, don't you? Sure. Flanagan scowled and licked his lips. I'm out. Thrown out, and... Then get out. Carleton cut in sharply. You've had more chances than any man ever got before from me, thanks to Regan. But you've had your last, and talking won't do you any good now. Flanagan stepped nearer to the desk. Talking. Who's talking? He flared in sudden bravado. Didn't I tell you I didn't read your damned letter? Didn't I? Huh? Didn't I? Do you think I'd crawl to you or any man for a job? I'm out, am I? Do you think I came down to ask you to take me back? I'll see you rot first. The hell with the job. See? Few men on the Hill Division ever saw Carlton lose his temper. It wasn't Carlton's way of doing things. He didn't lose it now but his words were like trickling drops of ice-water. "'Sometimes, Flanagan,' he said, "'to make a man like you understand, one has to use your language. "'You say you'd see me rot before you asked me for the job back again. "'Very well. I'd rot before I gave it to you after this. "'Now will you get out, or be thrown out?' "'For a moment it looked as though Flanagan was going to mix in there and then.' His eyes went ugly, and his fists, horny and gnarled, doubled into knots as he glared viciously at the super. Carlton, who was afraid of no man or any aggregation of men, his face stern-set and hard, leaned back in his swivel chair and waited. A tense minute passed. Then Flanagan's better sense weighed down the balance, and without so much as a word he turned, went out of the room, and stamped heavily down the stairs. Goaded into it, or through unbridled, ill-advised impulse, men say rash things sometimes. Afterward, both Flanagan and Carleton were to remember their own and the other's words, and the futility of them. Nor was it to be long afterward. Without warning, without so much as a premonition, quick and sudden as dooms, things happen in railroading. End of chapter 4, part 1